This episode is brought to you by Tegas, the go-to destination for bold investing. The investment research platform trusted by 95% of the top 20 global private equity firms just got even better. Building on their solid reputation for expert insights, Tegas has expanded to become the first true all-in-one research platform. The new Tegas makes diligence faster, easier, and more convenient than ever before. Your Tegas license gives you access to over 70,000 expert transcripts, more than 4,000 fully drivable financial models, and exclusive data sets like company management checks, industry KPIs, hard-to-find non-GAAP data, and more. Tegas is the fastest way to learn about a public or private company and the most cost-effective way to conduct investment research, now all under one roof. Learn more and get your free trial at tegas.com slash Patrick. You may have heard me reference the idea of maniacs on a mission and how much that idea excites me. Well, David Senra is my favorite maniac on one of my favorite missions with his weekly crafting of the Founders Podcast. Through studying the lives of legends, he weaves together insights across history to distill ideas that you can use in your work. Founders reveals tried and true tactics, battle-tested by the world's icons, and has David's infectious energy to accompany them. With well over 300 episodes, your heroes are surely in the lineup, and his recent episode on Oprah is particularly great. Founders is a movement that you don't want to miss. It's part of the Colossus Network, and you can find your way to David's great podcast in the show notes. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Patrick O'Shaughnessy, and this is Invest Like the Best. This show is an open-ended exploration of markets, ideas, stories, and strategies that will help you better invest both your time and your money. Invest Like the Best is part of the Colossus family of podcasts, and you can access all our podcasts, including edited transcripts, show notes, and other resources to keep learning at joincolossus.com. Patrick O'Shaughnessy is the CEO and founding partner of Positive Sum and the CEO of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Patrick and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Positive Sum or O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Positive Sum or O'Shaughnessy Asset Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. My guest today is Lee Ainsley, the founder of Maverick Capital. Lee started his investing career at Tiger Management, where he worked for Julian Robertson. In 1993, he left to start Maverick and has built the firm into one of the top performing hedge funds of the last 30 years. Lee doesn't speak in public often, so this is a fascinating insight into what it takes to build an enduring investment business, both psychologically and operationally. Throughout the conversation, we flick between his lessons building Maverick, his perspective on the market, and what he's learned about the craft of investing. I hope you enjoy this great conversation with Lee Ainsley. So Lee, this is going to be such a blast. I think a fun place to begin is actually with your origin story, because the firm is so old. It's just not often that a firm like yours is able to stand the test of time. We're going to talk a lot about investing culture and building a team. The tenure of your team is remarkable relative to others over several decades now that have been with you for so long. And that has to be rooted in the earliest days of building the firm, of meeting other peer investors at the time. Obviously, you were at Tiger. At lunch, you were telling me this incredible story about Steve Mandel and your relationship with him early on. Maybe you could retell that as just an amazing precursor to some of your ideas about integrity, ethics, and culture in an investing business. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me on. It was a great fortune to be able to work at Tiger in that amazing environment with so many 
really talented people, as you were pointing out, one of the people that was quite nice to me at that point in time was Steve Mandel. We started about the same time, but I had just come out of business school and he already was a well-recognized investor, all-American at Goldman Sachs, et cetera. And so I was under his wing for the first few months. And then I went into my year in review, thinking there was a decent chance I was probably about to be let go. But to my surprise, I was paid well beyond my expectations. They actually doubled my percentage interest in the firm's profits. And they made it very clear this was all happening because of Steve's recommendation. And indeed, they wanted me to uh, take over a new sector altogether, technology, which I was really excited about. I thought that was a big promotion. Throughout the rest of the day, three or four people came in to give me their condolences and <laughs> give me some pep talks. And I finally found out that my two predecessors had not lasted very long in that role, but nevertheless, it worked out. But I uh, look back on the time at Tiger, obviously, it was not only very formative and learned a lot from Julian, but I've really had the opportunity to work with so many talented people who became the basis for what we did going forward. Why do you think Steve did that? And what can be a very cutthroat environment in the investing world, incredibly competitive, lots of type A people? That seems like a pretty generous and kind thing to do. What do you think was behind that? Well, I agree. It was generous and kind, which if you know Steve is very consistent with how he interacts with folks. I will say I started playing with stocks when I was 13 years old, and I don't think Julian fully recognized the depth of my knowledge. And so I was quite comfortable with what we were doing. And I think Steve concluded that it would be in Tiger's best interest for me to have more responsibility more than anything else. Why do you think there has not been another diaspora, I'll call it, of amazing investors that came from one ecosystem like has happened with Tiger. Obviously, the first generation of those firms, yours, Lone Pine, et cetera, Viking, are well known, but it's continued through time, almost like the Parcells coaching tree or something, this amazing singular investing family tree, I'll call it. Why has that not happened more often? I think the only organization which has spawned as many successful investment firms is probably Goldman Sachs. But I think it's important to keep in mind if you go back to the late 90s, Tiger had probably a dozen investment professionals, and Goldman probably had hundreds, if not thousands. So it's really different. The hit rate is crazy, yeah. Exactly. I don't think there was any one magic item that drove the fact that a few of us have been fortunate to enjoy success after Tiger, but I do think it is a testament to the fact that Join had a really good eye for talent. And sometimes in places and people that weren't completely obvious, he created a culture where we worked closely together. We had a lot of trust in each other. It was pretty unusual at that point in time because Julian was so senior and already was such a well-known investor and the bulk of the investment team were in our 20s. So we all recognized who was in charge and therefore we as a team worked really hard to support each other and to learn from each other. A lot of how I think about investing in different industries came from my time at Tiger, not so much talking to Julian, but talking to other folks that were my peers. And as I left Tiger, then others after me, the strength of that network really continued. We continued to work hard to help each other, to root for each other. One of the things I've always loved about the hedge fund industry is even the largest funds have just tiny market shares. When you think about not only the hedge fund industry, but the stock market in general, therefore, there's really no reason to be competitive with our competitors. On the contrary, to this day, I like to see the long short community do well together as an asset class and typically am very supportive and helpful of those that I'm quote unquote competing against. You said Julian was a great spotter of talent. And that's something obviously that's been a key part of your role too in building Maverick the firm. 
What does investing talent mean to you? What is behind that idea or that concept? Well, again, I think very hard to distill in terms of here are the two or three attributes you have to have because whatever magic list you can come up with, there are a long list of people that have those attributes and yet do not seem to make it as an investor. And this is something internally we studied with great rigor because at the end of the day, I would argue investment firm only has two assets, the confidence of the investor base and the talent and dedication of the investment team. And so we work really hard on both those. To your point, bringing people in at Maverick Lease is a very intensive process, involves a lot of different steps, meeting with a lot of different people, a lot of testing work we do, and all that does lead us to making one or two offers a year, and those are typically accepted. If you were to look for some of the commonalities, some I think you would expect, intelligence, competitiveness, a real passion for stocks, but some are probably a little different at Maverick than elsewhere. We spend a lot of time trying to evaluate emotional consistency. So the highs aren't that high, the lows aren't that low. If you're right in your stock picks, meaning you're outperforming on the long side or underperforming on the short side and generally alpha, if you're right 55% of the time, you are one of the best in the world. That's a really hard number to attain. So by definition, you're going to be wrong a lot in how you deal with quote unquote being wrong. And again, it's a very competitive name and usually there's someone on the other side. So when you're wrong, they're right. How you deal with that is really important because a lot of people, I think, have those moments they just want to put their head in the sand and wait for the world to pass them by. But in reality, those are some of the most important decisions you make. When a stock is going against you, is that an opportunity? Has the world misunderstood it and we need to take advantage of this? Or wait a minute, this is on a different path than we were thinking. This is not a good use for capital because yours would be one or the other. So emotional consistency is important. We place a great deal of importance on a team orientation. Now, part of that is just from the beginning, recognizing the environments that I personally enjoy. I like environments where our success is driven by a team. We were talking about this the other day, but one of my favorite sports growing up was basketball, in part because to really excel, you have to be a highly functioning team where individual players are willing to make sacrifices for the greater good of the team. And yet, at the end of the day, everyone knows who really contributed. So to me, it's a great parallel of the importance to success of teamwork and yet still maintaining a meritocracy. And at Maverick, everything we do is based on teams. If you look at a lot of the stats that we track, we actually don't track them per individual. We track them for the entire team because we want that mentality of we're all pulling together to achieve a common goal. And also we recognize that given we have a rather concentrated portfolio and very long holding periods, that typically any one investor on our team is not going to have enough stocks to consider it to be a valid sample set. And then lastly, and it may sound a little corny, but it's very important to us, we really do spend a lot of time trying to make sure we have a very strong sense of someone's sense of integrity, whether or not they conduct themselves with the utmost ethical values, et cetera. So those are some of the things that we perhaps put a little more emphasis on than others. On the topic of emotional consistency, what episode across your entire investing career most tested your personal emotional consistency or stability, I guess you could say? Well, that's a hard question. It's a very long list. If I go back to early years at Tiger, and this is back in 91, we had bought a lot of Oracle and I had concluded and actually wrote a memo that technology tends towards standards and became very clear to me in the database world back then 
that Oracle is becoming that standard and there are these flywheel impacts about what that means in terms of other products they can sell and customer switching, et cetera, et cetera. And I think my basic thesis is right. So we started to buy a decent size position and they missed a quarter by an order of magnitude that was hard to comprehend. And if I recall, the stock went from $11 to $6 and there was such stress on the balance sheet, its ability to survive was all of a sudden brought into question. And this was obviously a challenging discussion with Julian, but I did convince them this would be the absolutely wrong time to sell, even though I felt management had not been fully forthright in certain issues. But it was a real gut check because at that point in time to say, yeah, Julian, I was wrong, we should sell, I don't think would have been great for my career, but more importantly, would not have been great for Tiger because it ended up being a very successful investment. So you have to take those moments of disappointment one of the phrases we use, hey, we're not playing football, we're playing chess. Getting wound up and emotional is just really counterproductive. We have a new set of facts today. Let's understand how that impacts our longer-term view. Let's compare what the market is offering us in terms of value today versus what we now think the longer-term value is. And if it's an opportunity, let's take advantage of it. And it's clearly not an opportunity, then let's move on and mark that as a loss and start focusing on the next investment. The last thing you listed there, this notion of ethics and integrity and sussing that out in somebody feels like one, incredibly important. I know it's incredibly important to you, especially given how long people have tended to stay at Maverick. So it can be something that defends you against bad situations for a long time, but also seems very hard to suss out in an interview process. So how do you do that? How do you come to peace with that aspects of someone's background or character or worldview or whatever during an interview process specifically? Well, and this is really important, not just for potential members of the team, but for management teams as well. And we go about it a few ways. One, there are certain questions that you tell me about a difficult situation you were put in and how you resolve it. If you ask those questions to enough different people, you do start to develop a sense of who struggles with some of those and who doesn't. But I mentioned earlier, we do a lot of testing. Most of that is personality testing. And these questions seem bizarre. Would you rather clip the hedges or mow the lawn. And yet the sum of that is a very long test. You get a lot of these strange questions. Sense of integrity is one of the factors that they do try to evaluate. And there's been some evidence that they've done that rather well. Just to give an example of how far we'll take things, we actually hired a group of ex-CIA interrogators who call themselves BIA, the business intelligence analysts, to train us on interviewing people. And again, helpful both in the interview process, but also with management teams. And they're basically trying to teach you how to be a human lie detector test. And there are all these things about little tells and how they anchor their arms and their feet, where they look, hesitancy to respond, obfuscation. No one of those little things in itself goes, aha, this person's not being honest. But as you start trying to compile a lot of those different signs, it may relay where someone's just being flat out dishonest, but what's even more likely it helps you understand where they're clearly uncomfortable. So that's played a role. And despite all that, you do make mistakes. And I think you know, it's worth pointing out for a training period, which every new member of the investment team goes through each year, the first session has been taught by me for the past 15 plus years, and it's entitled Integrity and Ethics. And we spend the entire time trying to make sure people fully understand how damaging even a small lapse of judgment can be not just to you, but to everyone else at the firm 
And also that this is the one area where we do not give second chances. You can't get to work on time, we'll buy an alarm clock. You seem to have a drinking problem, we'll send you to rehab. But if you in any way, shape or form, make a statement or conduct yourself in a way we think does not reflect a total understanding of the importance of ethics, we'll let you go and we'll let you go immediately. And we're up front again from day one. And that happened. That's happened in the That's happened history. a couple of times, unfortunately. And again, over issues that I think at most firms would be considered rather minor, hey, please don't do that again. But we just decided early on, if we're going to really emphasize how important this is, that's the appropriate reaction. And secondly, if someone was thinking about, oh, I could get away with this, making sure they fully understand the ramifications of doing that. So it all goes back to having an environment where we're very transparent about mistakes as much as anything else. I want to go again back to the beginning seeds of Maverick and why you decided to do it when you decided to do it in 1993. What was the precipitant that made you think, okay, now it's time to strike out on my own and build something separate from Tiger? I clearly was not looking to leave. Julian was treating me extremely well, both in terms of compensation and responsibility. I loved everybody I worked with. But I was approached by a family, a guy named Sam Wiley, who is really a serial entrepreneur, and he was smart enough to recognize, huh, this hedge fund business model, that's pretty attractive. That works. Let's start one of those. He, at the time, was the CEO of two different public companies. One was a software company, one was a retailer, and they were both companies I happened to know well. When he went to those management teams and asked for ideas, my name came up in both cases. So we started talking, I enjoyed our conversations, but made it clear I had absolutely no interest in leaving. And Sam's a pretty competitive guy, so he kept making the idea of leaving more and more and more attractive. And I did know that I always, again, I started playing with stocks when I was quite young, I always had this objective to have my own portfolio, to have my results purely determined by my decisions and have it be very clear what those were. And it was clear to me that was very unlikely to happen at Tiger. Again, joining was this very senior guy that we all held in incredibly high regard, but he made every single final decision. And the only catch was, I really didn't think I was ready for that responsibility. At the time, I was 28 years old. I'd only been at Tiger for three years. But at some point, it hit me, okay, Ainsley, you're going to wake up two, three, five years, who knows, and decide that you're ready but no one's going to offer you the opportunity that these guys are being generous enough to put in front of you. So I decided I really had to force myself to pull the trigger. In hindsight, that was pretty naive. I don't think I fully understood the challenge I was getting myself into, but luckily it worked out. What were the hardest parts about launching the business itself back in those days? Well, there weren't a lot of precedents. So one person had left Tiger at that point, David Gerstenhaver started Argonaut, which was a macro fund. Today, you can go to a prime broker and say, hey, I want to hang my shingle and boom, overnight you have the whole apparatus springs to action. Yeah. You have all your systems, you have people helping you raise money, cap intro people, et cetera, et cetera. None of that really existed. And we started with pretty small basis. We started with $38 million, most of which came from the Wiley family back then. The hardest parts were getting recognized, convincing people to even meet with you. The name Maverick certainly didn't help. I chose that name because I was 29. I thought it sounded pretty cool. I was living in <laughs> Dallas and wanted to reflect that, but realized you know, my first management meetings or potential investor meetings in Europe, where is this Maverick you shoot from the hip? 
<laughs> no, 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 no. We're actually very, very conservative. Then why this name Maverick? I don't understand. I remember distinctly being in Geneva going, oh, Ainsley, you're an idiot. What did you do? So that created some challenges. And then like everything else, performance drives all. And we started October 93. In our first quarter, we had a strong start. But again, it was on tiny assets. We had an okay 94 up mid single digits during a year that was quite challenging for most hedge funds. Well, at least that was all on the public equity side. And I just simply remember beginning of 95, this is make or break. We don't have a good year in 95 running this firm. The economics of this firm are not going to make sense to continue. And I'll be back in New York working for a job. Luckily, we did have a strong 95 and even a better 96. And then as to start growing and all that took care of itself. But it was a challenge. You and I were talking at lunch about the three jobs of someone running an investment firm that it's probably hard to appreciate if you haven't done that specific job, how hard it is to do all these things well. And I want to talk about what you've learned about each of the three responsibilities. So those being selecting the assets, whatever the stock picking, whatever you want to call it, building and managing the portfolio, managing risk, portfolio construction, and building the business. And we'll probably tackle them in that order because I think they build upon each other. So starting with stock picking, you said at age 13, I think, was when you first started getting into this. So you were young, you caught the bug, so to speak. In the early days, as you were learning about this from great teachers that you've mentioned, what was your early conception of what makes a great investment or a great business and how those two things relate to each other? Well, it depends. I went to engineering school and I think that gave me some perspectives of different ways of trying to evaluate and analyze different businesses that probably would not have had. And then I was a consultant for a couple of years focused on small businesses and that gave me a lot of insight into how businesses ran. In some ways, probably the best job when I was in college paid my way by developing systems for small businesses. And the one where I had the most intensive interaction over a couple of years was a small printing company, which in hindsight was so cool because it was both a manufacturer and a service-oriented business. And so we built a lot of systems to track cost accounting, inventory control, uses of presses, labor management. And yet on the other side, we did a lot to track advertising expenditures, IR on customer acquisition, now you price things. So by the time I got to start investing for real, I do think I had a strong understanding of different business models, a very strong understanding of the importance of moats or these defensible positions. I think, again, given a little bit my background in leading a tech effort at Tiger, really understood the value of sustained growth and also how challenging it is to sustain growth. And working with Steve and others at Tiger, obviously, I learned a ton by how they thought Steve, for example, was always super focused on the individual unit economics, developed a better appreciation from that. So I think by the time I was really picking stocks, I did have a fairly good understanding of the attributes I was looking for. And yet, to this day, I think my ability to identify those attributes correctly continues to improve day after day. And hopefully that's true for everybody Maverick. How does that happen? So let's say that each business has a couple key attributes, variables, whatever you want to call them, that are going to be the drivers of success or failure. And if you understand those better than the market, maybe there's a big opportunity. How has that evolved? What would be examples of a way you look at a business today that you think is significantly more productive than how you might have looked at it 10, 20, 30 years ago? Well, you go back 30 years, people forget there was no internet. There was no email. You want to get to 10Q? It usually came by the fax machine. 
And if you happen to pour through the 10 q in an hour, you are now at a huge informational advantage to everyone else you were competing against. So it was just a much, much less competitive environment. I remember going to IPO launches in 1990 and recognizing about half the guys there were having their two martinis and thinking, wow, how are they going to get anything done when they go back to the office? <laughs> it's just a different world. Today, it's almost, I would argue, the opposite where the challenge is how can you possibly survive the tidal wave of information that comes at you every second? There are so many sell-side reports. You could use the internet for days and days and days. There are podcasts like this. There's a lot of discussion about stocks on TV. It's a very different world. So some of the basics, back to your question, I think, are still present. Can you have meaningful dialogues with customers, with competitors, with suppliers? Can you triangulate what you're hearing from a company? This is more challenging these days than it used to be, thanks to Reg FD. But we like to talk to several different members of management, look for consistency of answers. We like to talk to the same members of management over time, look for consistency of answers. But now we also have data that helps support what we're trying to understand in terms of business trends. So we first went down the path of investing and in trying to develop a quantitative research effort in 2006, which is still a really important part of what we do. But in 2015, we turned that talent to focus on alternative data. And can we recognize, whether you want to call them alpha signals or KPIs, are there ways of tracking different elements of a business through data? That's not perfect, but it gives us some greater clarity. And after working on this for almost eight years now, we can touch every single industry in which we invest in terms of using alt data to give us some insights. Now, to be clear, in certain industries, it's far more effective than it is in others, but yet it helps us have an indication of different trends, and all that gives us a slight edge. How do you think about the different edge that you can source from? You talked about informational already and how that's evolved. There's analytical, there's behavioral, there's a couple different ways that you can have a persistent edge. How do you answer that question for Maverick itself, the business? How do you get and maintain an edge versus your competitors when the world is so competitive and full of information and fast and connected and all these things. Seems like a daunting task. So how do you think as the architect of this system, back to your system engineering days, about that edge inside the investment business itself? I've always felt investing is really a matter of doing everything you can to slightly improve your odds. In other words, you're not going to find this magic algorithm or magic bolt no one else has thought of, and aha, I've got this huge advantage now no one else has. But it's, can we do a slightly better job of gathering information? Can we do a slightly better job of interpreting information? Can we do a slightly better job in thinking about risk? And all those little slightly betters, I think, add up to be our core advantage. So just to give some examples, we typically only have three to five investment positions per investment professional. I think you'll find that ratio is a fraction of what you'll see elsewhere. So right there, where we're talking about a level of due diligence, it's quite unusual. You combine that with the fact that we have much longer holding periods than most long short funds. On the long side, we average 17 months. On the short side, it's 13 months. So people focus on fewer, fewer positions, and yet interacting with those management teams for a longer period of time helps us not only improve our understanding of that business, but again, developing real dialogues with those that can give us insights into that business, competitors, suppliers, customers. We use quantitative research in several ways. Every portion of the investment cycle is informed by quant at Maverick. And then even outside of all that, 
over the years, we used to hire people to go count cars in parking lots. Now we do that by using satellite imagery. Remember one company in particular, which is extremely successful short, ordered something from them once a week, only so we could look at the PO number, which told us how many POs they had processed in the past week. There are all these things we've done to try to have a slight advantage in our objective. And I can't say we've always fulfilled it, but the objective has always been to never be at an informational disadvantage to another public investor because our depth of resources, because how long we hold positions, there's really no excuse for that to happen. Now it does obviously, but to me, that's one of our most important differentiating advantages. Then I combine that with the depth and experience of the team. So the entire investment team is 29 individuals. On average, they have 14 years of experience. Importantly, 10 of those 14 years have been within Maverick. So a team that has worked together for a long time, and if you look at our six senior decision makers at Maverick, 21 years of experience, 16 of those years within Maverick. So it's that talent, that experience combined with a better set of tools and hopefully a better set of information that our competitors that leads to what we hope ends up being superior results. You said earlier in the Oracle example that a lesson you learned early in technology was that you tend towards standards. And once someone achieves that default mode, if you will, the power that the business generates is enormous, as Oracle did. Are there other features like that that did or still always get your attention as it relates to an individual business, features of a business that are not sufficient to buy the stock or belong the stock, but just get your attention in a unique way? I think there's one magic bullet, but there's several different aspects that can be very helpful. One is to really understand secular trends. Where is the world headed? and who's going to win and who's going to lose. Not that you can't have a great investment without that secular trend, but it's a tailwind. So again, it improves the odds if they have that tailwind at their back and for short, but that, that headwind in their face. Thinking about competitive advantages. So we spend a lot of time in industries trying to understand the competitive positioning among different companies. We spend, I think, much more time than most folks as we're looking at companies looking at the quality of management teams and not just what they say. One of the things I concluded a long time ago, almost anyone who's the CEO of a large public company, it's pretty darn impressive yeah. in that 45-minute interview. And they're smart enough to know what answers you want to hear. They won't be dishonest, but they will certainly shape their answers to make it close to what you want to hear. So for us, it's much more important to judge actions. What decisions did they make and how those decisions turn out over time? And then, as I mentioned earlier, going back and comparing what they say they're going to do versus what they end up actually doing. So I think all those things do help you have a better perspective. When I say outstanding management team, and you think across your whole career studying management teams, is there an example that just flashes to mind? Ed Breen at a couple of different stops, cleaning up the Tyco being the most impressive, but he's a guy that's had several situations where he took Apollo crap <laughs> and turned into something which was very rewarding for shareholders. And you look at what Satya's done at Microsoft. It's just pretty amazing. And you don't want you to argue Jeff Bezos, the Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. But I point to Microsoft just because where that business was headed per conventional wisdom and where it is, or not even where it is today, where it was just in two years, really shows the power of a CEO. What was Ed Breen's method since he was able to do it multiple times? What was his operating style that unlocked that value? That's a great question I should ask him next time I see him. I would argue something along the lines of brutal honesty. 
he was very willing to take, I don't care what we've done, why we've done it, let's start from scratch. And Maverick, we call this the fresh sheet of paper exercises applies to Maverick. We've always had the philosophy, if we were given this amount of money to invest today, how would we invest it? If we didn't have any investments, have a fresh sheet of paper, what are we going to do? Okay, so why is our actual portfolio different than that? That's the ideal portfolio. Let's move the actual to the ideal. And I think Ed's always had the same approach when it comes to business. What are my set of businesses? What should be my set of businesses? Where is your opportunity improvement? Where is your not opportunity improvement? And all the obvious things as well in terms of cost controls, motivating people, rewarding shareholders, using the balance sheet more efficiently, et cetera, et cetera. But not many people have had that kind of impact in three different industries that it has. What did you learn from Soul Price? <laughs> you got that quote. And this applies to Maverick, but also applies to other businesses. So everyone's heard of Costco, but unfortunately, Price Club is not as well known as it used to be. Price Club is actually the first warehouse business. So both Sam's Club and Costco copied Price Club. Price Club was eventually bought by Costco. Why Price Club is a great name in terms of it conveys what the retailers trying to do. It's also the name of the founder. It's founded by a guy named Saul Price. And one of my favorite business quotes from Saul Price was, the intelligent loss of business. Now, what he was referring to is, let's have a really limited SKU count so we can excel in the few SKUs we're going to buy in such force. We get great pricing. We'll be able to advertise them, push them, give them the end caps. We're going to excel in these smaller number of things and not clutter our buying or the consumer's mentality with all these different options. That's something we thought about a lot in Maverick. This corny, but in 1995, I wrote to myself our long-term strategic plan, and I basically laid out by 2000, by 2005, by 2010, what I wanted Maverick to look like. And it was essentially based on, we're going to start a new fund every X years, we need to raise X assets, how many people you have to hire. The new funds were Maverick credit, Maverick currency, Maverick whatever. But somewhere between 1995 and 2000, I started adopting that mentality. Wait a minute. We know we're really, really good at picking stocks. We know we're good at investing in equities. I don't know if we would be as good at these other things. Let's focus our resources on where we know we can excel. And I think that principle has really served us and our investors well. The sole price impact on the hedge fund, really cool. If you think about the second part of the job, so obviously you need to pick great companies and invest in them, table stakes. I think people probably have a hard time that don't do this for a living, understanding how challenging it could be to take, even if you've got a bunch of great ideas, and building a really good portfolio from them. What lessons have you learned there over the years about doing that really well? And here we could talk about the role that quant plays. We could talk just in general about how you think about risk in a portfolio context, not just risk in an individual investment context. Talk us through the lessons of portfolio construction and risk. So at Maverick, at least, every investment we make is driven on a bottom-up basis. Is in the portfolio because our team's concluded it is one of the very best uses of capital. But then we look at that collection of different ideas to see where our portfolio ends up from a risk perspective. And this really started up until 2011. When we thought about risk. We thought about our net exposure, our beta-adjusted net exposure. And then in August of 2011, when treasuries were downgraded, our portfolio went sideways. It performed much worse than you would have thought possible simply looking at those rather basic measures. And it became very clear to me that our approach to thinking about risk was not sufficiently sophisticated. There were some important things at work, 
we just weren't thinking about. As I mentioned earlier, by then we had a quant team that had been at Maverick for five years who had a lot of different tools at their disposal. And we tried to take, again, fresh sheet of paper, a completely different approach to understanding the risk of our portfolio. We could make this entire podcast, so I won't try to get too detailed. But now we look at everything such as our factor biases, how that compares to our history, how that compares to the market, how that compares to other funds, a lot of tools to help us understand whether those biases are likely to be productive or unproductive, a lot of things looking at risk appetites and likely that those risk appetites are changing, indicators of what's happening in the economy in real time, which ends up being 90% plus correlated GDP. So it's a real-time look at GDP, a lot of work in other hedge funds, our position and whether we share a position that may be not productive going forward. And the tweaks we've made out of that, it's not that often. Again, usually we rely upon what we're getting from bottoms up perspective. But when we have, whether it's a factor or regional exposure that we think may not be productive going forward, we're very proactive in controlling that. And I do think that's led to a risk or a volatility profile that we're proud of. There's a spectrum here coming from the quant world. At one end of the spectrum, you could say, okay, just give me your ideas. Maybe this is more like the platform approach, Citadel, Millennium, and others. Give me the ideas. And then the portfolio construction is basically going to be quantitative. It's just going to be rules-based. And then the other end, of course, would be like no rigor around factor exposures or whatever. Where do you think of Maverick as sitting on that spectrum and that slider? The extent to which it's not entirely rules-based and there's still, at the end of the day, judgment, position sizing, position selection, and so on. How and when does that play a role? And you don't just purely hand it off to a machine. So nothing is purely handed off to a machine. As an example, part of what Quant does for us is come up with recommended position sizes that looks at a lot of fundamental data that comes from our team, no one else has, but also looks at a lot of off-the-shelf, pretty typical Quant factors, looks at odds of success, looks at transaction costs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and makes a recommendation from the machine point of view this position should have 2.8% of our capital. The portfolio management team looks at that. We especially pay attention to big outliers, but human judgment is going to have the final decision just because, as you understand, there's a fundamental weakness in quant and that it doesn't really look forward. You could argue it looks at sell-side estimates for revenues and earnings, et cetera, et cetera. It gives us some glimpse of the world looking forward, but it certainly doesn't understand changes in secular trends or changes in strategic positioning, certainly does understand there's a new management team that's going to do wonderful things, or there's a new management team that we don't have confidence in. Since we're fundamental investors, it's really important to us that all final decisions are made by humans, but hopefully we're making more consistent, more accurate, more informed decisions by using Quant as a tool to support our decision-making process. What are the hardest parts about that aspect of the job? What recurrent thing that you have to face down provides the most challenge when making portfolio construction decisions? Well, we're very fortunate in that almost all the senior people at Maverick started at Maverick. And you saw that in the stats about how long people have been at Maverick. But every one of our sector heads started a year or two after college. They've grown up in Maverick. If you were to bring in a successful investor from another long, short firm who's five plus years into his career, he would think he landed on Mars. You're making me do what? So for a model for income statement, cash flow, balance sheet, every element is picked up by our quant systems. Therefore, it has to be entered in a pretty particular way. 
one of the things the quant's going to do is it's going to screen your model. Hmm. You think revenue growth is going to be 14%? Could be, but that would be a two standard deviation difference from historical. Or you think incremental operating margins are going to be X. You think whatever metric there is, they're all screened against history. Not that they're wrong, but let's just recognize that's unusual. And let's debate why you have an assumption that outlies what you would expect looking at history or also not do it just for history, but versus the civil side. Often, yeah, that's why we own that stock. Exactly. I get that. But let's make sure we recognize that merits discussion. So it helps us be, again, certainly more efficient, hopefully more accurate investors. But those things are head scratching at first for people that didn't grow up in Maverick. It's just a lot of work, <laughs> like anything. Well, they get the lot of work part. They may not always get the incremental value part. When it comes to the third leg of the stool, the notion of building the business, if you were addressing an audience of people that were all about to embark on that journey, let's say starting asset managers or hedge funds or whatever, investment firms of different types, what would you say have been the most surprising challenges that they might then face in their journey to create their own business that maybe you didn't expect going in, but were really important challenges to building a good enduring investment business? I'll answer it in real time rather than 1993 time because the world has just changed so much. There weren't a lot of long, short funds. You had two hedge funds, probably had 60, 70% market share of the hedge fund space. We have a little seating business where we've helped start funds that are starting up and give them a lot of advice, a little bit of capital, and hopefully a stamp of approval with our brand. It's hard. I've been surprised by there's an escape velocity where you have to be at least 100 million, if not more like 250 million, to even get meetings, no matter how good your numbers are. Secondly, having solid risk-adjusted returns does not do any good. You need to stand out, which I've concluded to stand out means you got to take a lot of risk. If you're starting out, you better have numbers that two or three years into it are pretty eye-popping. That's hard. So the challenges of starting a small firm today, now don't get me wrong, there will be another David Einhorn started virtually no money, did quite well year after year after year, and it finally became a real big business. It's just the odds of it happening are much smaller today than they used to be. And the enduring piece of advice I give everyone is you've got to make sure that everything you do represents integrity and represents your ability to do what you say you're going to do because you won't get a lot of second chances in those regards. Fascinating comment that great risk adjusted returns is maybe necessary, but not a sufficient story to build an investing business. One of the things that's been really interesting in the world of hedge funds has been the role that rates have played just historically, whether it's related to the short rebate or other aspects of portfolio construction. How do you think about the role that zero interest rates for so long in the post-financial crisis period played in the attractiveness of the opportunity set for this long, short style of investing. Yeah, I'm amazed how often the higher rates are good for hedge funds because short rebates are higher. Okay, true, but that's just a very tiny part of the story. So the HFRI and long short index, which is the most comprehensive hedge fund index, started in 1990. If you go back from 1990 and look at how hedge funds, again, not Maverick, just the average long short fund, did when rates were over 2.5% versus under 2.5%, there's some interesting data. Now, first of all, people may forget, but that's about 50-50. In other words, since 1990, the Fed funds rates have been over 25 47% of the time. So it's a healthy sample set. When rates are over 2.5%, on average, 
hedge funds have outperformed the markets by 6.5%, driven by 12% alpha. Under 2.5%, they've underperformed by 4% on the back of less than 1% of alpha. So clearly, higher rates is a more productive environment. Rebates playing a tiny role in that. I think what people forget, especially now, as I sit on a few different investment committees, I can promise you the world hates long short equity, and with good reason. So the underperformance over the last 12 years since the financial crisis, and then what really was nailed in the coffin last year, a lot of funds were down more than the market, even though net exposure was well under 100%. And I think people are missing that we are now in a different world and likely to be in a different world. And so if you use that 2.5% benchmark and you just look at futures curves, the market is essentially predicting that Fed funds will be between 37 and 5.5% for the next five years. So no, we were near two and a half, which I think is a fair way of saying we're likely to be over that two and a half. And what's also interesting about the over and under two and a half percent is you just look at the rate of returns of the equity markets, it's not that different. When rates have been under two and a half, annualized is 9% for the equity markets over 9.7%. So in terms of just looking at equity returns, those worlds don't look too different. But again, something else is going on if you think about the stats I mentioned earlier. I compare it to... You have two swimmers, one slightly better than the other, and they're racing downstream. Well, the delta between how they finish is not going to be that big. Okay, now turn it around. Now they're going to swim upstream. Now we're going to separate the men from the boys. Now you're going to more clearly see who that stronger swimmer is. And I think the same is true for companies when they're operating in different capital costs. So when capital is essentially free, it's harder to understand which company is making better decisions than the other because every use of capital is a good decision. Who cares if I had a small return? The investment was zero. In a higher cost of capital world, well, wait a minute, my cost of capital is 5% and I only got a 6% return. That's a problem versus my competitor who got the 14% return. And so over time, higher cost of capital, I think, becomes that more demeaning environment that helps separate stronger companies from weaker companies. One way to look at that is, again, thank you, quanting. We look at a lot of these things, but just the correlation between revenue, beaten misses, and subsequent stock reaction. And so this is reported revenues versus sell-side expectations. They beat, does the stock go up? They miss, stock go down. That correlation for the first six months of this year was as high as it's ever been going back 20-some years, which is as far back as we can track the data. And if you do look at other periods which had those strong starts, 96 to 99. It wasn't a hot six months, which then mean reverted. In each case, that was the beginning of very strong periods of returns. And then again, to me, not the driver, but it's worth noting on the short rebate side. So when you short a stock, you borrow it, you sell it. But when you sell it, you get a pile of cash. That cash pays an interest rate. You would deduct it from that rate is what you pay to borrow stock. So our net is the highest it's been in 20 some years. A, the interest rate's higher than it's been a long time, but B, and this is a whole different discussion, what we're being charged to borrow is about the lowest it's ever been because competition on the short side is about as low as it's ever been, as so many people have given up on shorts. So I don't think people fully appreciate how anomalous and how challenging the free cost of capital world we've been living in for 12 years was to all fundamental measures. When you have stocks that are driven by, what did the Fed say last night? Not how was earnings. That's challenging for a fundamental investor. But I think we're back in the world, which is more normal, again, thinking about rates, 
long-term average is 4.6%. So the say over two and a half is nothing crazy, but it can have rates sustained at more typical levels or even anything less than free money. It should be a very, very productive environment for fundamental investors. How do you make sure that your team is best positioned for that whole opportunity setup? So if you're right, and the current is now a headwind or swimming upstream, sorry, don't mean to script the analogy, and the strength of the swimmer, your team, is now going to get magnified. How do you make sure that's the case? Because you're also swimming against other great swimmers. In this case, there's lots of now, probably versus when you started, incredibly well-trained really smart investors with incredible access to data and information. So yes, the absolute story is clear cut as you just laid it out. But what about the relative story of like, okay, but the maverick sector PM still has to outdo other great investors out there that are pricing the same securities? Not to brag, but when you look at how the average hedge fund in different regimes, we did substantially better during all those regimes. And the real question is, how do we keep that up? I go back to, and I'm sorry to be a little repetitive, but back to the fact we have so much more focus on every individual investment, given how few we have per person and given our holding periods. I don't think many other fundamental firms had developed what we've developed both on the quant side, and alternative data side. And the other piece, and this has really been terribly helpful recently, where we have a significant advantage is the fact we've been investing in private companies back to 1994. We made that a more segregated focus back in 04 and end up because we had so much success. So we made all those investments within the hedge funds. A few of them worked out so well. By 2014, we concluded too much of the hedge fund capital was essentially locked up in these private investments, and that forced us to launch a new entity altogether, Maverick Ventures. We have learned so much over the years from those activities, from talking to private companies, some which we invested in, some which we haven't, but had dialogues that have influenced our thinking on disruption, on secular trends that have had huge impacts on public companies. That why the ventures business has become a very successful business in its own right, there's also extraordinary value just into what we're learning through those efforts day in and day out. Can you let us behind that curtain a little bit? So you're making these private investments, which means you're in the flow of founders and new companies and like you said, disruptive innovation. How does that actually manifest? What are some examples, let's say in the last 10 years that you've been doing this, where you saw something on the private markets and that gave you some window into, again, back to your notion of improving odds, what might happen to public market companies? Just give us a felt sense of what that's like. I'll give you an old one and a new one. So years ago, probably 15 years ago, we invested in a company called Core Valve which would put new valves in your heart, but was the first company to figure out how you can then size the valve perfectly to fit what you're trying to replace, as opposed to a doctor taking their best guess from looking at the images and then sewing it to get it as close as they could. This is a perfect fit that was done while it was being put in your heart. And as it became clear, wow, this is really gonna work. Huh, how's that gonna impact that people are make the old valves? And so one, that led to a great private investment, and two, led to two pretty good shorts as yeah. well. Most recently, AI has just been a great example of where the public side and the private side have been of a tremendous benefit to each other. So just to give a little history, we invested in Sam Altman's first company, Looped, back in 2011 when he was at Stanford. Sam ended up moving over to Y Combinator, a very successful seating platform, and he brought us in as one of the early investors. So we've had a long history with Sam. 
And as part of that, our ventures team had a very early look at ChatGBT. And like most of us, they went, holy cow, this is something different. What does this mean? Where is this going? And started making sure the public team was aware of what the world was about to be aware of in a few months. And we concluded pretty early on that the bottleneck to a lot of this will be GPUs, NVIDIA chips. And as we started having more discussions in 2022, one of the leading LLM developers told us, yeah, our total compute budget in 22 is 10 million. This year, it's going to be 100 million. And in 24, it'd be a billion. Huh, that's a pretty quick ramp. One of the lessons of investing around mobile and the iPhone was, it's great there's not a lot of phones. Let's start thinking about what's inside those phones. Likewise, you just don't pick up an NVIDIA GPU chip and ask it to do AI. There are a lot of things that surround that to make that work. And we're talking to a lot of those vendors. Yeah, there's actually an order out there. It's da-da-da-da-da. Huh. Well, that'd be like half the revenues next year. Are you sure? So it became very clear to us late 22 that there was going to be a wild supply demand mismatch for GPUs. So we started thinking about the ramifications on the public side. Likewise, you think about the last 10, 15 years, most technology investors have been really focused on software for good reason. And semis got thought of as it's commoditized, it's very cyclical. One reality over the last 10 years, the number of semiconductor companies is slightly over a billion dollars, is slightly down on the software side that's more than doubled. And yet collective market cap of those semiconductor companies has grown fivefold and margins have almost doubled. So it's not what people have thought about semis in a classical fashion. So in this new world where, wow, the bottleneck's going to be NVIDIA chips and other type forms of compute power, let's go figure that out. Even large long short funds are scrambling to try to hire semi-people. I guarantee you, virtually no one in the bench world has semiconductor expertise. But we do. Andrew Homan, who leads our technology efforts, has been at Maverick actually a little bit over 19 years now. We first bought NVIDIA back in 2004. I mean, this is a company we've known well for a long time. And as the Ventures team is starting to meet with some of these companies on the semi side, to bring in Andrew, who's been investing in semis for 27 years and knows all the management teams on a first-name basis, we were able to make some decisions that I think other firms just didn't have the knowledge and experience to make. Those have already worked out pretty well. So our venture team and private teams are in meetings together all the time. Andrew, the guy that runs technology on the public side, meets with the entire venture team once a week, all just making sure, what did you hear this week? What did you learn? And I'll say there sometimes the venture team doesn't understand this turnover nugget that, oh, wow, really? Because they don't understand the ramifications for bigger companies. And likewise, bringing Andrew's relationships and his experience to bear on these small private companies, not only is it helping us make better decisions, but it's helping us win the deals. Wow, here's someone that actually knows a lot. Oh, and you know that guy and that guy? It's a unique period, this whole different line of discussion, but this kind of disruption historically creates great opportunities. I want to come back to that disruption point, but make sure I squeeze the last little bit out of the semis example, because I think it's a great one. Semis obviously became uninteresting to lots of hedge funds and long short managers, therefore everyone left and there was no expertise. But when you dig into why they're interesting in terms of like the moats around the business, it's not that hard. Dig into TSMC or NVIDIA, like it's pretty clear why they're good businesses. It's easy to say that now in summer of 23, of course. But when you think about software, that same question for software businesses, do you think it's as easy? The narrative has been that software businesses are the best business in the world, super high margins, high retention, can grow them cost effectively and so on. Obviously, there's some great public software businesses, but do you think they're as defensible 
as some of these semi-stories that you've spent decades watching unfold and grow? I think it's a really interesting point in time. So software is king, software eats the world, you know, all these phrases prove to be very true. If you look over the last dozen, 15 years, software businesses gained tremendous market cap, garnered tremendous amount of value add, et cetera, et cetera. But you need to think about what drove that. And to me, it's a few different issues. A, not very capital intensive. B, switching costs. If I walk into Maverick and say, hey guys, starting Monday, we're not going to use Excel. We're going to use Google Documents or whatever. There being a form. Network effect. There's a reason we use Instagram and not something that no one's ever heard of because your friends aren't on that one. Just the value of having a better mousetrap. There's a reason you don't use AltaVista or Yahoo to search because Google came up with a better solution that everyone gravitated towards in a virtually costless way and then just critical mass. Well, AI turns a lot of that on its head. So the infrastructure costs are now sky high. Again, talking to private companies, a different one, but another very large company said, yeah, we're just finally starting our heads around that we look at our cost structure. It's not going to be 90% labor and 10% infrastructure costs. It's going to be the opposite. Our entire, everything we do, Microsoft just put in their annual report a material risk they may not get enough access to GPU chips to maintain their competitive positioning. That's an interesting line item. So the low CapEx worlds, mind you, switching costs. Who cares what AI engine you're talking to? ChatGBT obviously is amazing, but Anthropic, probably the number two player, just released Claude 2. There's a lot of things where it blows ChatGBT away. ChatGPT does some things better as well, but there's more than one of these. There is no user interface. You just type in your question or talk to it. I don't have to be retrained. I can use either one. Network effect. Some would argue, well, ChatGPT is going to get smarter and smarter of all the more and more questions, but you don't want ChatGPT to be taking in your knowledge. You don't want your knowledge to be accessible by the public, number one. Number two, ChatGDP doesn't want to be driven by people putting in garbage. So I don't think there's going to be a huge network effect. And then finally, in terms of the better mousetrap, it doesn't really matter. For 99% of use cases for an AI engine, what was Robert Bedford's best movie? You can get a pretty similar answer if you're slightly different. Who cares? Or write me a poem about this oak conference table and the style of Robert Frost. They'll be slightly different, but they'll all be good enough. Now, gee, please read my radiology report. Okay, maybe I want the best one now. But for most things you're going to use it for, if one's slightly better, you're not going to be able to tell. It's going to be indiscernible. So I think, and I went back to the last decade, how semiconductor margins have almost doubled. At the same time, software margins have already been degrading. They're 29% down to about 24% today. I think that may continue. I think the ability for software companies to maintain their moats, if you will, will become more and more challenging. Not that they still won't be great businesses for a long time. Going back to what we talked about earlier, technology tends towards standards, which is a memo I wrote back in 91. I think it's been a pretty useful paradigm as we think about technology. I'm not sure that's true anymore. Is that the key idea to understand the standards idea around investing through periods of disruptive innovation? You mentioned the iPhone. It's discrete. It's not continuous. The thing didn't exist and then it existed. It became the dominant platform and everyone builds on it and all this stuff happens. And obviously investing in companies around that platform change led to a lot of fortunes. You all of a sudden enable companies to exist that couldn't before. What are those lessons? Is it the standards thing? Is it something else? How do you think about if we're faced with another one here today, right now, 
what are the key things you're telling your team? This is what you need to know from what we've learned from history. Well, unfortunately, I'm old enough that I've been through a few of these. That's why I'm asking you. <laughs> I first met Michael Dell, uh, probably 91. We're both in our mid-20s and saw what the PC revolution did to DEC, IBM, et cetera. First met Jeff Bezos in 98. Amazon had a $400 million market cap. And AltaVista was a much bigger company back then. Then, of course, we saw mobile and the rise of Apple, cloud computing, software as a service, and I mean, a few of these disruptive technological changes. Maybe you could argue internet's going to be as big in hindsight, but I really think AI will be bigger than any of those. And so we try to look back at all those and see what lessons we can learn, and hopefully we can avoid some mistakes as well. And I'd say it's really twofold in our mind to recognize that these disruptions create winners and huge losers. And in AI, we have some ideas. I still think it's a little early. It's not as obvious. Number two, don't forget about the peripheral players. A little while ago, we were talking about, when we were thinking about the GPUs, what other components are needed to make those GPUs work. So we'll just take Apple and the iPhone. As well as Apple stock did, they're actually, in terms of percentage gains, some of their component suppliers did even better, being along for the ride. But you look at their competitors. So 2007, the iPhone comes out. Both Apple and BlackBerry or RIM have about a $70 billion market cap. Year one, RIM actually goes up over Apple, doesn't have great security. Oh my God, who wants to type on a flat screen? Give me my keyboard. But by after about 2008, it became pretty clear where it was headed. You go to 2012, Nokia's gone from $100 billion market cap to 10. BlackBerry went from 70, then 80 to 3. And Apple went to 600 and now is 3 trillion. But the winners aren't just going to have a bad quarter. It's going to be much more extensive and last longer. So as we think about this world of AI, identifying winners and losers, identifying the peripheral plays, if you will, the secondary effects, is something we've been really focused on since late last year. I think being ahead of the curve helped us a little bit. And again, that was thanks to our private team. And in the private world, as you can guess, there are so many talented people on so much money trying to chase after different ideas. And I think a lot of our competitors, frankly, don't have the background to really evaluate those officially, so we'll see. What has been your personal strategy for staying up to speed on an increasing pace change of innovation in all these different fields? You mentioned Sam Altman, and I wonder if part of this is just get aligned with the right people, because so often Sam's a good example, Elon's an example. The most talented people are actually now doing multiple things across multiple technology fields. So is it people-centric? Is it something different? I'm even curious, are there specific things you read or conferences you go to or like literal actions that you feel have most contributed to staying up to speed in, again, a world that's drinking from a fire hose all the time? I do believe personal relationships are really important. For all the bad press, deservedly so, that San Francisco gets, first quarter of this year, there was twice as much money, VC money, invested in companies based in San Francisco than the rest of the United States combined. And that's still where it's at. And I think AI actually is going to make that even more true. And so, yes, to have relationships with people that are thought leaders and also who attract a lot of talent around them is very helpful. You start the question, personally, I'm very fortunate in that I work with extraordinarily talented people that will give me synthesis of things they've read, things they've heard, well, you really should focus on this one, whether it's a sell-side report or magazine article, et cetera. But it's a challenge. 
we haven't really talked about analysts and developing analysts, but one of the most common reasons a person on paper that should be a home run doesn't really make it in our world is because up through being an investment banker, college, et cetera, they lived in a task-oriented world. Write this paper, turn it in. Take this test, great. Build this PowerPoint presentation, build the Excel model, yes, sir, what's next? And we throw them into our world. There is no what's next. It's every second, every day, you got new things floating around and you're never finished. You never can say, hey, I talked to every single customer, every single supplier, and every single competitor, and every single employee. I'm done. It just is not possible. And so your question is a really critical one. How do you make the right decisions to use your time as reductively as possible to stay on top? And that's everything from being pointed in the right direction to having a nose of what's going to be important, not important, to have experience. I've read every time I read something or listen to this podcast, it's really been useful. Let's do more of those. But I think it's a really challenging question these days. You say a bit about the topic of money. We're an industry that's funny. It's literally the product is turning money into more money. It's the scoreboard. It's a motivator. It's compensation. It's a key part of what drives the ecosystem of talented investors. And I'm trying not to get too specific with my question and start by just asking, like, what have you learned about money, making a lot of it, being in an industry that's so focused on it as a thing? What big lessons have you taken away on a strange topic when you step back and think about it? It's officially the most open question I've ever gotten in my life. Congratulations. So as it relates to Maverick, I and mean, it goes back to who we're trying to attract, we're trying to make sure people are focused on the net present value of their economics over the next five, 10 years. And did you have the opportunity to make more money somewhere next year? Yeah, yeah probably, but think it through. And that becomes or counters some of the platform type businesses. For whatever reason, our first all at Tiger, and it's true at Maverick as well, when there's more money at stake, the more people care about it, even though on absolute terms, wait a minute, you should be the happiest guy on the earth. And when things are tough and there's not a lot of money because we didn't have a good year, people don't get as concerned. People are always more concerned about how they were compensated on a relative basis, not relative to the value they added, relative to what their friend made, whether that friend works at Maverick, works at a different firm. And I get that. It's human nature. Well, it's one measure of status, if you will, and I may more need to agree. And again, going back to being fair and make sure we have this balance of a team orientation and meritocracy, I work really hard, maybe not in any one year, but if I look, one of the things we do do, we have four different metrics that we track that drive the compensation decisions, and we look how each team does in each of those metrics on the trailing five years, three years, and one year. And I also have a lot of different metrics regarding how a team got compensated in different ways. Over time, which team got compensated the most and which team had the best metrics should be highly aligned or I'm not doing my job. And that Maverick, that's been true. Just a long time ago. <laughs> At Tiger, there were times that people would, after they got their comp, go in the next day and say, I don't think it's really fair. I think I deserve this. And here's why. And the systems back there aren't that great. And every now and then that worked. Oh, you get more money. Well, once the word got around, you felt like an idiot if you didn't go back to Nashville. <laughs> and about year two into Maverick, I had someone do that. And I held a firm-wide meeting the next day and say, look, there is someone here who's asked me to review their compensation. I just want everybody to know the policy. I'm happy to review it. I can promise you it will not go up. Some chance it will go down. But if you'd like <laughs> me to review it, feel free to come to my office. We'll talk about it. That set the tone. No more reviews after that. Because I've worked really hard to be fair. 
As you think back on your career, I'm always interested in zooming really far in on the building blocks that make up the story. If you think about the most important individual conversation that you had in Maverick's whole history, what comes to mind? So I mentioned earlier that the first handful of people that joined were all people I'd known for a while. And I mentioned one was someone I'm going to business school with. There's a guy named Steve Cap. So after business school, Steve worked for a public company briefly and then started his own hedge fund. I went to Tiger. And when I decided that, gee, there's a chance I'm really going to leave Tiger because this is a very interesting opportunity. I also decided, you know, I shouldn't just, if I'm going to do this, let's make sure I understand all my options. And the only other thing I seriously considered was partnering with Steve and his hedge fund has some success, but purely driven by him, as I recognize, because I was helping him out in certain things. And Steve and I have always liked each other a lot. But at that time, what he and I were thinking about didn't really compare well to what this family has offered me, so we decided not to work together. You fast forward a few years, four years, yes, but now Mavericks has some success. It's become much larger. His fund is doing fine, but not nearly as large. He has some frustrations in his position, and we were comparing notes one day, and I said, well, maybe you should come work here, and we always wanted to work together, because yeah, I would be interested in talking about that. So he came down to Dallas, wise him to go look at houses, or meet them for dinner. We started about 9 a.m. Now it's 6.30, we're supposed to meet our wives, and the whole day we've talked about what a fair economic arrangement would be. And of course, are all these different, how about we grow at this, and returns in this, well, we're smaller, we're going to grow faster, da 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 and we spent all of the two reasonable, logical people who had the shared objective of getting that Venn diagram to overlap. And then we got to leave in five minutes. We've got nowhere. We don't even have a rough idea. And he finally just says, I tell you what, if you can promise me you'll be fair, I'm in. And we shook hands, didn't have a contract for years. Then some general counsel said, oh, no, everybody has to have contracts. Eventually we did. And we've lived off that handshake for now 20 some years. He's still there. Oh, yeah. And still a very important partner. He's semi-retired, but any project where I need someone I trust who's super smart and will dive in deep, I call Steve and it's taken care of. And to me, the conversation has always been in the back of my head because it's just the way you hope anyone who does know you, now worked at Maverick for five or six years, can just say, hey, it's going to be okay. You can't tell you what the numbers are, done. just it's going to be okay. And I feel a responsibility to earn that trust. And I think it's a good reminder of how important that is. Power of a handshake. Pretty amazing story. Handshakes can work. Long-term partnership. I'd love to talk about the episode in 2011 when you made the decision to start the transition towards not being the sole decision maker at the top of the investment process anymore, having a co-CIO and then a CIO as part of Maverick. And I want to really dig in on the story because when you study investment firms, the number one killer is succession, that it's really hard. Often there's a very talented, very tenacious, very entrepreneurial investor that starts the business. And then when they go to hand it off to a second generation, it just fails for whatever reason. It just happens over and over again in our industry. So how did you manage that? And I'm curious about why you did it, how you did it, how it's gone. This whole process of starting to share some of the responsibilities in the portfolio specifically. It's fascinating to me, so I'd love to hear the story. Well, as we mentioned earlier, there was this recognition that I had three different jobs and I wasn't doing any one of them as well as I would hope to do them. To really excel at that role, I do think takes an almost 24-7 dedication. It certainly takes a level of commitment and energy because, again, it's a very, very, very competitive world. 
and I was getting to the point where I was not as intellectually interested in stocks as I had been earlier in my life. I was getting to the point where I missed not seeing my kids and starting to recognize, wow, they're not going to be kids a whole lot longer. And then when it became evident through performance that I was not doing either of those, well, one of the three, but day-to-day stock picking or portfolio management risk control, particularly well on either side, that to me was, okay, now it's really time. And it's a little bit different than that. It wasn't handing down to the next generation because the senior team, I was just a few years older than, sound like they were 15, 20 years younger. So it was more a sideways thing, if you will, and in part driven by, so Tiger, by contrast, there was Julian Robertson, there was everyone else beneath him beating him ideas. He said yesterday, we from the very beginning, back that team-oriented culture, were much more five individuals working together to come with the best decisions we could. And I was the leader of that five, but I was a member of the five, not the boss of the five. And so in that way, it wasn't as a dramatic change. And the person, and now we've had one more of these changes, but as someone that was living, breathing, waking up at 3 a.m. to see what happened in Japan, just couldn't let it go the way I used to be. And so allowing myself to get more focused on the business and especially on risk management portfolio and develop some of the tools that we still have in place today, I really do think it worked out well for our investors, which is the most important test of all. And then almost three years ago, we went with a co-CIO structure and Ben Silver and David Tikajinsky have led our fundamental efforts ever since. It's interesting because they have slightly different investment styles, certainly different areas of expertise, and bringing both of their strengths together has really created a yin-yang type dynamic that I think has been really, really effective. What advice would you give to those facing down that same challenge for how to affect that and not trigger those landmines that seem to lay all in and around this process? Well, as I've mentioned to you at lunch, I did consult with a few people that I really respected who've been through similar transitions, Seth Corman, Sandra Miller, the list goes on. And they all had different perspectives, but one that was probably most influential to me was Stan's point that if you're going to give someone the responsibility and the authority, you have to really give it to them. You can't say, usually you make decisions every now and then I'm going to come and overrule you, but it will be fine. Don't worry about it. One, the odds are you'll probably make a worse decision, not a better decision because you're not as close to it. But even if your decision was as good or say even slightly better, just the demotivating impact of being in charge, but not quite being in charge has a real significant cost. So we had a year where that transition sort of gradual and then it did get to the point that I would still give advice and coach, but also made it very, very clear to everyone that, hey, on the day-to-day investing, I do not have final say, unless it involved risk. So I had final say for risk, and I thought a position was just too big, I would take it down, but not because I didn't think it was a great investment, more because I thought it contributed to a risk profile in a way that was inappropriate. If we zoom back to today, so we're in the summer of 2023, and you just survey the landscape of long-short equity, the whole industry, you said based on your experience on investment committees, you can promise it's not necessarily a popular camp given performance over the last 12 years. How do you see the landscape and where there's opportunity, especially given the presence of Citadel, of Millennium, of Baliazny, these firms that have seemed to create a better mousetrap? If you just look at the raw output of these insanely sophisticated risk systems, plus leverage, plus talented stock pickers, seems to be a pretty productive model. How does a traditional investor, hedge fund manager, 
compete against the gravitational force that is these new models in the longshore industry today? I'll touch on the first part of the question first, the frustration with longshore equity. One thing I did not point out, but I think says it all in a nutshell. If you look at the correlation between the HFRI longshore index and the equity markets on a trailing three-year basis, back in 98, 25 years ago, it was under 30%. Today, it's 70. It peaked at 90 two years ago. Well, 90% correlation, why am I paying you hedge fund fees? I'm just getting beta. Even at 70, I'll just rag at Maverick. It's been in the teens. So we've not gone down that path. And so going back to senior investment committees, this is noticed. And the way we got there, shorting was really tough through this world of crazy monetary easing, fiscal stimulus, et cetera, et cetera. And so many funds answer one, let's just take up net exposure, do less of the shorting stuff. Number two, I can use S&P puts or short futures to create my short exposure. The catch is that doesn't generate alpha by definition. And by the way, most of your sophisticated investors could do that themselves. They don't need to pay you to do that for them. Or ETFs, okay, maybe slightly better, but not nearly as good as researching every single stock in that ETF and making your own conclusions, how they should be weighted, et cetera, et cetera. So people slowly but surely gave up on shorting, especially after January 21, Wall Street bets. That's when a lot of people say, okay, I was told yeah. I give up. Forget it. It's torpedoing firms. Ridiculous. So the long short profile has looked more and more like the beta profile. No wonder people have sort of given up. You're right in that world. The platform guys, whatever you want to call them, that the very successful Millennium Citadels have generated a different return profile in a very different way. So every little pod has extraordinarily tightly controlled parameters on not only just exposure, but different factors, et cetera. Those are then collected. They typically have a center book, which they have their own algorithms to pick off the best of the best and upsize those. And then they have leverage, which all works because they have very strict control. Where I think the flip side is, again, if we're back in a world where fundamental stock picking is more productive, that model, I would argue, is going to have a harder and a harder time keeping up. Just because when you put together all these collective books, well, you got a lot of things long and short at the same time. Now, they're smart enough from a transactional point of view to pair those, da, da, da. But nevertheless, collectively, you don't have your very best on each side. Leverage is important, especially helpful in a low vol world, higher vol world, higher cost world. Leverage has different implications. And those places are hard places to work. And turnovers are higher there than elsewhere. I have huge respect for Ken Griffin, consider him a friend. I get what they built, who can't but be tremendously impressed with what they built. But it's just the person that we're asking to join Maverick, that's not typically the experience they're looking for. So you, know, you look at the last 10 years, They've won, no question. I hope that the next 10 years, and I think the next 10 years may paint a different story. How do you think about the next 10 years for Maverick specifically? What trends will continue from the firm's past? What do you hope breaks with the trend line and goes a different direction? How do you think about the vision for the business? I'm not asking you to redo your vision questing that you gave up because of Saul Price, but in the next 10 years, what do you think the direction of the firm will be? So I think one of the mentalities that's really served us well over time is the desire to continuously improve. What can we do better this year? Whether it's part of the investment process or data gathering or managing people, interacting with our investors, how can we do it better? And yet you need to balance that with consistency. Investors don't want to hear, aha, we've decided we're going to invest in used cars because it's a great opportunity. 
And so if you think about that, we described early in the conversation that day one, the concept of being long and short within every region, within every industry which we invest, and now factors take care of that, that really hadn't changed. Our average net exposure, average gross exposure, average industry weighting, all very consistent with number 30 years. But within that, our ability to execute on those objectives of preserving growing capital and developing great reputation has improved dramatically. There's so many things we're doing today that frankly you wouldn't even dream would be possible 20 years ago. So back to your question, I think in 10 years, not just for Maverick, for many places, AI is going to play a really big role. There are already ways we're using it, both in the back office and the front office, that already have been minor step function improvements. And it's in the very early days. So back on that business plan where we do all these different things, one of the reasons we decided to just focus on equities, I believe even back then, it would be the most impervious to computers, to machine learning, to AI, whatever you call it, because we're in the bottom spectrum of the cap table, therefore the most sensitive to decisions humans make. And it will happen eventually, I guess, but it's going to be a very long time before any AI engine can evaluate a person, their intentions, their integrity, as well as we can. And for equities, it's still management, management, management. So while I do think we'll become more proficient, more productive, et cetera, we will continue to focus on where we think we can excel, and that is understanding the value of businesses run by humans. If you were throwing a dinner and the goal is just maximum interesting, stimulating conversation, what three other investors would you invite to the dinner? Recognizing that there's a lot more than three that I'm sure would be great, but just for fun. Let's say, well, I'm a little biased, but join me top of the list just because I love the opportunity to have another conversation with him, period. You got to put Warren Buffett on the list. Not that I agree with everything he says, but he also is so amusing, so he makes for a fun dinner. What do you disagree with most of what he says? Well, a couple of things, but he really, and understanding the logic, likes to argue that high turnovers, evil mutual funds are always over time going to underperform the equity markets. They pay commissions, taxes, da 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 da. And I could make a compelling argument just looking at Maverick data that the degree to which we have outperformed the markets for a long period of time now, and we're doing that, we do pay commissions. So it's after commission costs and even after our fees, more than compensate for the incremental taxes. So if he's right, if you're just going to invest in indices and but there are, and it's not just Mavericks, there are a lot of firms that have added enough value to more than compensate for those costs. But I tried to have that discussion one time with him. He wouldn't really. Wasn't having it. Actually, my best conversation with Warren Buffett, who I've met several times and finally went, but he never had much interest. And he came up to me one time and said, oh, hey, are we still having da 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 As he's talking, I'm so excited he's talking to me. I realized he thinks he's talking to someone else. <laughs> Mr. Buffett um, actually liaised, oh, rightly. And just walked away. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I invited him to dinner, give him to finally talk to me. And the third, probably Jim Simons, sort of Renaissance. And, and I do know Jim a little bit, and he's a fascinating guy that I think has impacted our world more than most people recognize through his extraordinary philanthropy. Private, but he certainly is not very public about it. But I think very few people really have an understanding of the dollar amounts that he's been supporting causes that are important to him for decades. Then he was really, in my mind, the pioneer of quant investing. And likewise, A.W. Jones, pioneer of long short investing. But I've read everything he's ever written or written about. So I don't think I would learn as much from A.W. Just zooming to today and very much a selfish question. 
and we've talked a lot about the importance of great management behind teams and some historical examples. If you had to go study three active managers, CEOs, what have you, any three that come to mind as ones that you think would be fruitful to go study how they're operating their business today? So fruitful in terms of becoming a better investor. I mentioned it earlier, but I do think the turnaround of Microsoft is something that I can't remember a good parallel, not just in terms of, hey, operating results are better, but completely new strategic focus, complete change in leadership style. So Saudi would definitely be on the list. Andrew Jassy, I don't know well, but met a few times. Again, very different than Jeff Bezos. Almost like a Tim Cook to Steve Jobs, but highly competent and is beloved with an Amazon. Be loved. He does this cool thing on the first day of March Madness, which is a Thursday where there's so many games being played. He invites over 200 different Amazon employees to watch basketball all day long until the very last game. So meaning out there, it starts at 9 a.m. or something. And for number three, probably Ed Breen. I hate to be repetitive. I know we've already talked about him, but again, it's just someone I've held in such high regard. And even when he's been in situations that people thought were pretty hopeless, he's shown the power of management. We talked at lunch about basketball, a shared passion of ours. Who's your favorite basketball player ever and why? Well, this is a wimpy answer, so I apologize. But I would say Michael Jordan in large part because my dad played basketball at Carolina. So I grew up a huge basketball fan and very partial to Carolina. Even to the point my first year at UVA, I was pulling for Carolina which against UVA, which did not go over very well with my friends. Actually, that what was it, the last dance show got my kids to recognize, wow, maybe he was as good as LeBron. What do you know? And my favorite set of all time to be both leading scorer and defensive player of the year in the same year is something you have to admire and respect. Yeah. The idea of basketball you mentioned earlier as this team game that nonetheless, obviously superstars matter a lot, but without the team, it's just not going to happen and not going to work. As you think about teamwork going forward with your team, Anything else that you would leave people with thinking about as they cultivate their cultures and teams inside of investing orgs that we haven't talked about that you think is critical to Mavericks stitching? The obvious, make sure everyone's being treated fairly and respected. We've worked really hard to try to have a culture of what we call constructive debate. I mean, we want to be friendly, we want to be a good team. Doesn't mean you're not going to tell someone they're wrong. Now, you can say it politely, you can say it's a jerk, we prefer it politely. But again, one of our phrases, if you're only telling me things I already know, if you're agreeing with me on everything, you're serving of no value. You're not helping me in any way, shape, or form. If you just, oh yeah, I think so too. So we want people to be motivated to have differentiated perspectives. Sometimes even it's just to be thought-provoking, but that's an important part of teamwork working effectively. And then finally, we've always had the approach, once you're on our team, you better be ready to start. Yes, if you're a brand new analyst and first year or two, you're going to be asked to do a lot of models and you're going to support the people above you. But if you've been a member for like six months and you haven't come up with a potentially interesting investment idea, you're on the wrong path because that is your job. And we'd rather you have something that has to be thoughtful, even if we disagree, but we'd rather have those wheels turning and you showing us that, hey, I'm thinking about these things and here's some potential ideas. And that's how you learn. When we hire some super talented person that has a little too much confidence, we always hope his first idea is a disaster. Just sort of a way of making sure people understand just how hard this job is and let's all have some humility because we have a very difficult job. Since you're doing it to each other all day long for so long now, 
What are the components of a great investment pitch? They hadn't changed that much. So we have a version of a slide deck we put together back in 94. And one of the slides was what we look for in investment company fundamentals, competitive positioning, quality management, different valuation metrics, et cetera. And over the years, as different marketing people have been involved and different senior people, it's been tweaked, this, this, and that. But you'd be shocked by how similar it is. And part of this, we're talking earlier about why so many folks have done well of Tiger. I think most folks coming out of Tiger would give you a pretty similar list of what we're looking for. And people not to get off track, but they're less so now. There's a period of time like, oh, all the Tiger folks talk all the time, just copy each other's positions, look at the 13 Fs. In reality, we hardly, at least me, I mean, I've talked to a couple, but one based on we talk to each other is based on we're looking for the same qualities and we're identifying the same companies. This is a strange question, but what do you think the hardest question, but still good question is that anyone could ask you? Hardest, but good question. That's not fair because then you're going to ask it. <laughs> I mean, maybe. I don't know the answer, but the hardest question I ponder with is how do you raise your children in a way that when you look back on your deathbed, you're really proud of them? What are some things that you think might be true as an answer to that? Again, typical me, I try to research a lot of different things. When I recognize that my children are likely to grow up with more fortune and more comfort than I had, that concerned me. So I spent a lot of time with people I knew that kids were old enough, they had their head screwed on straight, and despite having some success, et cetera. And I had probably a half dozen different conversations thinking I was going to find, aha, here's a magic algorithm. Everyone had completely different opinions. And the only one that was pretty common throughout, now my kids are adults, so this doesn't really apply, but spend a lot of time with your kids. Someone said, everybody talks about quality time. I don't know what that means. What matters is quantity of time. Just be with them. Discuss the meaning of life or watch TV. It doesn't matter. Just be with them. So I think there's importance to that. And clearly, the example you set, so of course, with regards to integrity and ethics, but also with regards to work. There's a downside that I wasn't a very present parent through some critical years, but there's the upside is my kids think it's the normal thing to do to work their butt off. And they both work their butts off. And I think that is largely from learning from example. And then lastly, learning from example in terms of a healthy marriage and healthy dialogue and healthy arguments and all that. But like all these things, kids learn by watching more than they do by listening. In bringing work to them, was there anything that you did understanding that like kids are going to go their own way? They're going to be interested in what you do or not some percent of the time. And a lot of that's baked into their DNA probably. But is there anything that you look back on and think, oh, that was pretty good. That was a good strategy for telling my kids about what I do or involving them in some way. It's certainly something I'm thinking a lot about. My kids are nine and seven, so they're beginning to ask those questions and be interested or not. I'm curious if there's anything you did that you think was especially good. Well, we always, and this is obviously not a unique idea, but when it came to allowance, a third was money that they could spend however they wanted. A third went into philanthropy and a third was savings. And on the philanthropic part, we would sit down at year end and or allow us to go up and down depending on behavior or whatnot, count up how much they had and make them make the decision of where it's going to go. And sometimes those things I thought weren't that great, but they weren't bad and that's what was important to them. And then the savings part could be just let it sit there. And I think I gave them a really high rate, like 20% or something, just so they could clearly see compounding the value of that. Or they could pick a stock and I would guide them and give them a list of stocks they could pick from. 
And my older son was less interested in that last piece. And my younger son was extremely interested in that last piece. So my goal was to give them exposure. And as they move forward their life, let them understand where their interests and passions are. But by at least exposing them, it opened up the avenue as a potential passion. Again, my younger one works at a venture capital firm and thinks about all things investing all the time. My older son works in an environmental consulting firm and cares about the environment. We didn't talk earlier about Maverick Ventures and your point about your son just reminds me to ask the question. Any, apart from the obvious advantage of information learned through that effort being very positively impactful on the public equity portfolio, anything else that you think is really important about having started that inside of Maverick, especially given our discussion that you didn't want to start seven different business lines, credit and all this other stuff. Say a little bit more about the Maverick Ventures experience. So we first made a private investment back in 94. For the first decade, and this was within the hedge funds, it was done on a very opportunistic, sort of sporadic basis. If something came our way, we'd look at it and say it was interesting or not. And after a decade of that, we already concluded that we had learned a lot that, again, was very helpful to decisions we were making in the public markets. But I also recognized that the returns were okay, they weren't great, but most importantly, to really add value, you needed the expertise and experience to help these companies be successful. And as public equity investors, we pick up the phone and buy the stock and pick up the phone and sell the stock and occasionally tell management what we think and they usually don't listen to us. But this was a very different responsibility to help these small companies be successful. So we concluded if we were going to continue making such investments that we needed to bring in that expertise. David Singer started three different companies. All three went public. We invested in two of them. And I think Dave was at the point that he was looking for a change in his responsibilities. So we convinced David to come join us late 2004. Fast forward 10 years, we'd had a lot of success under his leadership to the point some of the investments have become quite large. We concluded we had a larger percentage of hedge fund capital in illiquid privates than was appropriate. Started Maverick Ventures so we can continue to make those investments, but have a different pool of investors to support that. That in itself has become a great business, thanks to the leadership of David and other members of his team. To your point, has continued to be just invaluable in terms of not only what we learn, but what we can bring to bear on the private side. And it's also fun. As a matter of fact, I think one of the risks, one of the disadvantages, if you will, is you have to every now and then remind a member of the public team, I'm glad you're really jazzed up about that $5 million private investment, but you do have this multi-hundred million dollar investment over here that I also need you to focus on. I haven't had too many of those conversations, but- It's funny how that happens. It really does happen. But thinking you can really help influence a company to the next level of success, dealing with a management team that really is interested in your input, it's just a different experience than we have on the public side. So, Leo, this has been really fun. It's been so fun spending a day with you, learning about the history of the business with you and with your team. I always ask the same traditional closing question in all these conversations. What's the kindest thing that anyone's ever done for you? So having listened to a few of your podcasts, I had the suspicion that I may get this question. And so, you know, think about different things like my parents teaching me the importance of integrity or the electoral science professor who made me retake an exam because he thought I didn't do a very good job in the first one. And I finally realized there's nicest and kindness that are connected. And so the nicest thing that ever happened to me, I don't even know the person's name, but whoever was director of admissions at the Stanford Business School 
in the late 80s and did not let me in was the <laughs> nicest thing that ever happened to me. The kindest, thanks to that, was going to the University of North Carolina. I was asked to work with the board on something. Julian Robertson was on that board. We started talking stocks all the time. Going back to Jordan, it was just like talking basketball with Michael Jordan in my mind. And I was on my way to go work at Goldman Sachs and out of the blue, he asked me if I would consider working at Tiger. And I consider it the kindness because I didn't really realize at the time. But once I was at Tiger and saw the other people they were bringing in and how smart and talented and driven they were, I recognized that I didn't really fit the mold. I didn't go to Harvard Business School. Obviously, I didn't go to Stanford. I didn't go to Ivy League College. I didn't play Division I sport. But what I think Julian did see is I had a real passion for socks. And to me, which again, I didn't realize at the time, it was so kind of him to give me that chance. Wonderful way to close. Lee, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Enjoy the conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find every episode of this podcast complete with transcripts, show notes, and resources to keep learning. You can also sign up for our newsletter, Colossus Weekly, where we condense episodes to the big ideas, quotations, and more, as well as share the best content we find on the internet every week. 